Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli. We've got George Hoare in London, Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury. And we're very happy to be joined today by Jennifer Silva, who listeners may know. Uh, she's the author of the mo- most recently of We're Still Here, Pain and Politics at the Heart of America. Uh, she's assistant professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University Bloomington. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, working class pain and working class politics more generally uh, in America ahead of next year's presidential election. Uh, we've actually tried to avoid talking about the sort of entering into the circus of the U.S. perm election, but we are going to broach it a little bit here today. Um, so hi, Jennifer. First of all, how's it going with you? It's great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're delighted to uh, to finally talk to you. Um, and I think I want to kick off by jumping into the politics before we move into uh, the kind of substance of your book. Uh, but I wanted to highlight one thing, which is that one of your respondents uh, that you spoke to in your research memorably summed up the 2016 presidential election uh, by saying rather President Dickhead than President Sellout, which I really loved. Um, do you think this was borne out? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think it. I think it was borne out, though it's um, it's difficult to know. You know, which which candidate would fall under which label. <laughs> um, but I think it sort of speaks to the idea that um, you know they they felt like they were choosing between someone who was you know corrupt and had you know sold their um, soul to corporations versus someone who was um, kind of a nasty person but who could be trusted. Um, and Wait, so which I think one's that's which? how they. <laughs> Well, that's the that's the interesting part where now it seems like, you know, I'm not sure what they I think there's lots of arguments that could be made that, you know, Trump was just as much of a um, sellout. But I don't know if they would feel that way, though. I think um, prior to 2016, it did it did seem that Hillary was uh, on course to be the to be the sellout. That's Um, right. Yeah. But I mean, that's that's uh, I guess how how things um, unravel. But yeah, I think it's such a great um, I just want to you know, read, read the quote out that you, that you start the, um, the book with, because I think it's just such a great way to, to frame some of the problems that, that, and some of the issues and themes that come a little bit later. Um, so one of your, <clears throat> one of your respondents says, um, I love women and I think they can do anything that a man can do, but that woman should not be the president of the United States. So help me God, but neither should that jackass. Um, so it's like, what the frick do you, um, who the frick do you pick? I'm like, um, you're not giving us much of a choice here. Either way, we're going to be destroyed. Now, if there was somebody else worthy, I'd probably go in that direction because it's a joke. At the end of the day, I'd rather have President Dick out, Dickhead than President Sellout. I mean, do you think this this is a good way to sort of frame some of these um, some of these, I guess, issues around the puzzle of working class politics and and where the skepticism towards politics in general comes from? I, I think so. And what I really liked about this, this is actually one of the first interviews I did um, for the book and working class people are often characterized as sort of apathetic or disengaged or not really understanding their interests. And to me, like, you know, this interview, it's like, no, she, you know, Brie knows like pretty much exactly what's going on and she can mm-hmm. sum up what's happening. And she has a really good sense that no one is really for her interests. Um, like she's obviously very smart and, um, you know, not shy. So I, I kind of, I liked that as a way to start it to say, um, like, yeah, she's kind of given up on politics and she probably has good reason to distrust politicians. Um, but it's not because she's not educated or informed. It's she's actually quite informed. Mm, and, and is able to, to capture the, the, yeah. the terrible choice presented um, very, uh, in a very, very concise and um, quite compelling way. She does, yes. Um, yeah, so I guess maybe just to, to move into some of the, the questions to, to broaden out the, the discussion a little bit around the, how, the, how the book emerged. Um, what, what, was the, what was the starting point? What was the initial um, research project that you, that you started on? Because um, it was initially you were looking at working class conservatism, but it, it developed a little bit from that from that starting point, didn't it? It's true. I often start books with one idea and then it kind of takes me into this totally different direction. And um, and then by the end of the data collection, I'm like, oh, no, what, what's happened? Um, so I would say I was very interested in this question of uh, white working class conservatives um, and, you know, why it is that people seem to vote against their own economic interests. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, I'm not really a pol- political sociologist, so I, I wanted to kind of uh, approach this question by listening to people's stories and trying to understand their systems of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, I didn't write that book because many people wrote that book in 2016. Um, and so and so I was in the field and I was trying to, you know, talk to people about their political ideas. And I really had a very hard time finding anyone who would fall into this sort of white working class conservative who voted against their economic interests and, mm. you know, was very religious or, you know, loved their guns more than they cared about their wages. Um, I, I just didn't really find that. And so, you know, I would find people who were actually very critical of politicians and very critical of big businesses, people who actually did believe there should be a larger safety net and that rich people should pay more taxes. Um, and so I, and then who were, you know, pretty disengaged and didn't really, it's like they weren't turning to religion. They really just didn't believe in anything anymore. And so it, it shifted my, my research focus away, um, away from what I thought it would be, which I think in some ways is more interesting. Um, and it shows so much more, um, diversity of, you know, opinion and thought within the working class. Mm, I think, um, It, it definitely comes comes through in some of the um, the later parts of the book describing how this I guess this um, disengagement the reasons the forms and some of the I guess avenues in which p- potentially political impulses get diverted down from uh, ranging from uh, conspiracy theories to, to, to mindfulness and all of this sort of thing but not to get um, ahead of our, ourselves because um, I think there is could I just so could I just jump in before yeah. um, just before we get stuck you just in have, because. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, George. Um, I, I got a question, Jennifer, about working class in America because, um, <clears throat> so usually, I mean, um, the case is presented as that everyone, you know, I mean, the kind of the cliche is that everyone is presented in America as if they're middle class, or the middle class refers to mm-hmm. um, people who are both blue collar and white collar. Um, so could you clarify what working class meant in the context, what, you know, what do you think it means and what it meant in the context of, um, of your book? What kind of people did you talk to in the sense of, um, uh, where did they live? Um, what kind of jobs might they have had? What was the demographic or sociological profile of your respondents and how would they understand working class? Because it would help to clarify for our listeners who they're all over the world, and obviously working class means different things in different contexts. You know, it's interesting because I, I am aware of the sort of saying that everyone in America thinks that they're middle class, and that's often sort of used to say that they don't understand where they fall in the income distribution. But the people I talked to actually um, were very willing to call themselves either workers or laborers or um, even poor. And I thought I thought that was sort of interesting development. So the people I was speaking to, so I was in the anthracite coal region of northeastern Pennsylvania. So this is an area that um, basically peaked economically, you know, about a you know a hundred years ago, um, and you know, like a million families were supported by anthracite mining, and it was an area that was um, well known for having a very militant. Uh, uh, working class of miners, so it's like st- having lots of strikes um, and sometimes even violence. A lot of class conflict between miners and uh, coal mine owners, and also famous for sort of having this very strong working class community. So that um, if miners were striking, people would kind of rely on each other and help each other get by. And so I was kind of my my vision of class was coming out of um, the history of mining and um, you know workers, uh, mostly like white male workers. Um, and then for me, the interesting part is like, well, what happens to class um, when there's no more coal jobs and when, um, you know, the men aren't really working or um, their men aren't able to support families anymore on their wages. Um, and we also see uh, families not um, as strong or stable as they used to be and also communities um becoming much kind of weak and weaker. Um, and so it's like, for me, it's like almost trying to understand like what happens to the working class um, when, you know, this very clear vision of working class as minor minors goes away. Mm, and I, I, think, I think they were kind of trying to figure that out too. Yeah. I think that context 
and that history comes through in in a in a few of the interviews that you relate particularly um and i yeah um i guess maybe before though we move on to sort of essentially what you what you found um maybe just a quick question on on how you collected the data for the book what you actually what you actually did um because i think in in the uk amongst other places there's a bit of an issue um sometimes with journalists bravely leaving london to go into the the provinces to find people with regional accents who then come to represent the whole of the working class on a news broadcast in a in a vox pop and and your approach is um a little bit different to this um, isn't it this kind of quite tokenistic representation um, of the working class in in some uh, media forms that that is particularly uh, obvious in in the UK? I think that's right, and I would say here we have a similar problem where it's usually kind of the older white male factory worker who's sort of down on his luck and becoming very racist and angry. Um, so I did try to move beyond that. Um, the way I did it was. Um, you know, these are kind of places where everyone knows everyone. And so I just started showing up to a lot of public events, like mm. high school football games are huge. Um, you know, they have these big parties and tailgates and everyone comes up for the games. And there was also a lot of drug addiction kind of community forums going on at the same time because there was a um, heroin epidemic happening and then lots of kind of town meetings and other kinds of events. So I just started showing up and um, so you were it was okay for you to show up I mean particularly at something like um drug addiction um community events it was okay for you to show up in those contexts as a stranger a high school auditorium and there'd right. be a panel right. of you know the county coroner and the police chief would be there and so I would just sort of like show up and um look around and then eventually um I met someone who brought me um, basically to a different drug addiction support group that she was part of. And they did, they allowed me to come in and, um, I didn't act, collect any like data at this point. I was just meeting people and then we sort of became friends. And so she started taking me around and introducing me to people. Um, and then they started being a little bit more open with me and mm. I was able to, um, start, talking to people about the research and asking if they meet with me one-on-one. Um, and this was probably, this probably took almost a year, I would say from the time I started. And then as I kept going, what was interesting is that a lot of the white people I was speaking to um, kept telling me about the newcomers who were um, usually black or Puerto Rican and coming from cities and moving to the area. Um, and so then I kind of crossed this racial divide um, within the, in the coal region by um, talking to women like Brie, who were, um, who maybe actually were willing to date black men um, and then trying to understand the sort of new and more diverse working class um, who is also in the coal region. So I would say after spending that much time, there definitely isn't just one image of working class. There's, um, you know, lots of different people with different backgrounds. Mm. So, I guess maybe to move on to to some of the things that you you found through these um, conversations. I mean, one of the major themes of the book clearly is is this idea of pain. It appears in in the subtitle. Um, how was pain experienced by the the people and experienced and understood by the people that you you spoke with? Why do you think it be- becomes so so central? Yeah, that's so interesting because I I didn't really go into the research with actually any questions about pain. Um, I, I always sort of go in with the wrong questions. I did this with my other book too, but I kind of, I went in with a lot of questions about politics and politicians and voting history um, and kinds of policies people believed in. And so I was sort of like, you know, I kept sticking to my questions and then um, most people were kind of, they were willing to answer my questions, but then they would try to take the conversation to other places, which was mm. usually about their own kind of personal suffering and what they'd been through and sort of how they understood who they were and why they'd ended up in the position they were in. Um, and a lot of it would be talking about pain within their families, either growing up or currently um, talking about struggles with mental health or addiction or violence. Um, and they they would still be able to connect their feelings to politics, um, but they definitely weren't started with, starting with kind of abstract ideas mm-hmm. about what policies were right. They wanted to start by talking about their own lives. Um, and I was sort of like thinking about, you know, 
how do we connect an individual up to this idea of class or how do we connect an individual up to a bigger sense of um, a unit? And it's like, well, maybe pain in a way is like how the individuals could connect up to this larger sense of um, connection because that was one of the only things that people seem to share. Do um, I think it's really interesting that you you sort of almost alluded in your answer there to, to this idea of how you develop class consciousness and um, do I mean do you think that pain is is a is a kind of um, a viable route to this because I think it's quite striking that it seems like some of the people that you speak to manage their pain in a in quite an individual way um, and almost are skeptical of other people's um, pain sort of almost labeling them as not strong enough if they can't. Um, bear it um I mean do you think that that do you think that it, it is an individualized experience or do you think it does have that route potentially towards uh towards solidarity of, of, of some sort for me it's I do think there's their potential for it um I you know people were able to kind of point to causes of their suffering that went beyond individuals um you know they were able to talk about poverty or racism um, or, you know, actions taken by politicians that had uh, created pain. And they were actually, you know, able to, you know, draw these connections by saying, you know, first the jobs went away and then we see alcoholism going up and mm. um, we see men losing their sense of self and becoming more violent. So they, I think that they could draw those connections and that there is, and there were some spaces where people would sort of help each other or try to make these connections um, but there were also instances, as as you said, where this was diverted and it almost became a contest to show who could survive more pain. And that became like one of the only ways they could show that they were people who were, you know, dignified, which is to say, look what I've been through. Mm, I think it, it, it comes through in some of the, the themes that you draw out of some of the um, interviews that for <clears throat> quite a few of the people that you, you um, spoke with, pain seems to be linked to some ideas of re- redemption almost and it's a way in which um i guess sort of uh, pain can be a sign that uh, an experience is is potentially formative um it can give a sort of a meaning to to a, to a an unpleasant experience because it 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 leads to something um to something sort of better in in the near in the near future i mean do you think i mean did did, did this come through as a potential interpretation of, of the way that people were feeling the the politicized pain? I think so. So I think that they magnify the sort of positive consequences of suffering and they say, look like the suffering made me into who I was today. Um, but I think that that could then kind of go different ways. Part One way it could go was to say, you know, we sort of have the shared suffering and we could, you know, use all of this energy we have and this struggle we have to make changes uh, mm. or it could go another way which is to say um you know retreat from other people and just celebrate myself for having survived mm. um one of the spaces where i think there is potential is when people thought about their own children um mm. and they realized that they actually wanted to make changes for their children so that they didn't go through what they had been through um and that you know and there you i would see kind of small acts of um, kind of, pe- you know, women challenging social order in order to help their kids, even if it was something small, like, you know, going to the school and fighting with a teacher who wasn't treating their kid well. Um, and so in moments like that, there might be some potential for people not just wanting their kids to suffer, but actually wanting to change the situation. I mean, I guess one interpretation of the discussion so far is that potentially this is all um, a little bit depressing or kind of um, a bit of a a bit of a downer. Um, But I guess maybe a question before moving on to to gender that you just alluded to. What about pain relief? Is this just in terms of drugs or are there mindfulness and spirit spirituality and conspiracy theories, which I mentioned earlier, are these sort of escapes of, of some of some sort as well opiates of, of, a, of a type i think so you know so people are suffering and some of the things that you know they turn to to deal with their suffering or you know food and cigarettes and drugs um mm. and those do serve to numb their pain and 
you know, there are other ways that they would numb their pain, such as, um, you know, self-help. So, you know, joining a positive thinking group and trying to, you know, change their attitude or also kind of retreating into um, conspiracy theories. So this is another thing I didn't really expect to be as powerful in the research. Um, kind of the story, you know, basically people saying like the whole system is rigged. Um, you can never trust anyone in power. They're bullies. They're trying to control us. Um, it, it was actually could like you, much more critical. Could you than give I us? A, I mean, I was just going to say, could you give us maybe some examples of the specific content of the kinds of conspiracy theories? Yeah, and, and it's interesting because people would usually start off making sort of leftist critical arguments, like you know, for example, how absurd is it that an individual can own a private prison, you know, profit off of people's pain? Or how crazy is it that, you know, these pharmaceutical companies make so much money basically getting people addicted to drugs and then make so much money on the medicine that's supposed to get them off of the drugs? Um, and so it would kind of, they'd have this like very critical edge. Um, and then they'd sort of keep going and then be like, well, that's crazy. And if that could happen, then maybe, you know, the fluoride in the water is also mind control or like when you see a plane driving by and there's you know smoke coming out of the plane maybe that's drugs or maybe the government's going to turn into martial law and eliminate all the poor people because there's not enough resources um and so they it would sort of or maybe it would start off and saying you know there's no clean water for poor people and then you know say oh the government wants them all to die anyway and um so it's like it almost felt to me like they would um in some ways have instincts that were very critical and correct. And then they would kind of go down in a way it felt like rabbit holes and then decide that, you know, the government was totally against them and wanting, wanting to control their minds and eliminate them. How, how do you read this or how do you, do you think this can, can be explained? Cause it does seem <clears throat> in some of the, the, the interviews that you, you discussed in the book that it, there is that, that's that qu quite, uh, yeah, as you said, leftist starting point, and then at some point the 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 argument takes a bit of a a turn that maybe not quite expecting um, into into what is a yeah essentially a conspiracy theory. And I would say like sometimes I'd be doing the interview and I'd be like, oh, maybe they're right. You know, yeah. it's sort of <laughs> well. <laughs> like, huh? Um, and so yeah, and they, you know, this is like such a good example where they'd be like, you know. Um, for example, they'd say, you know, soldiers are totally brainwashed. Like, why should I want to fight against someone in another country who's also forced to be a soldier? And, you know, I don't really believe that America stands for anything. And so they'd be like extremely critical and, you know, almost have this vision of solidarity. And then um, they might like take it a little further and say, you know, the Illuminati are controlling everything. And I'd sort of lose them. But I, I don't know. I, I, I do think, but part of it, I think, is that they they see all these truths about the world and about um, kind of corruption and about distrust. And then because they're so on their own, a lot of them times they would go towards their phone and use the internet and try to start um, looking things up. And so maybe an argument about, you know, 9-11 and the attacks might have become sort of starts as a critique of the United States and their role um, as a global power, but then it suddenly becomes like, oh, but the attacks never happened, or school shootings never happen at all, and they're all created, and um, and so it kind of takes them in this other direction. Yeah, no, I mean, I imagine we've all had debates like that, uh, you know, with some random person at a bar or whatever, where you end up starting off on kind of a quite critical line. You're like, yeah, okay, well, this is quite interesting. Yeah, this guy, we're really seeing eye to eye, and then as you say, it kind of veers off in a random direction. And I guess it, it strikes me as being you know a kind of a certain lack of coherence in terms of an understanding of um where i guess a critical posture slides into complete mistrust of any sort of uh, mainstream narrative about be it 9-11 or school shootings or any of the examples that you've given um but it, it strikes me as like a kind of a lack of any political organization which would give coherence to those arguments right i mean i, I guess that's how i would try yeah, to explain but it. it's you, also it's that? putting it's putting, but it's also kind of putting, um, it's trying to explain tremendously abstract impersonal forces of um, economic change and social transformation that are very difficult to understand unless you kind of put them uh, in terms of agency 
very directly in terms of agency or a sinister kind of plot to achieve a particular end. Yeah, and we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore the fact that um, I think liberal conspiracy theories since since 2016 have have really flourished. I mean, think about approaches yeah. to to Russia's influence in in the election or Pizzagate. There's, I, you I know, and, it's interesting. And, They're of a different kind, though, in a way, aren't they? Because um, that's to you know, so it's not kind of. It's not trying to explain the decline of um, industry in a particular part of the country, you know, which is a a result of um, automation and offshoring and so on. The kind of liberal conspiracy theories are qualitatively different. Mm. Anyway, we're getting off track. Sorry, sorry. The people I spoke to, as you said, they're not really connected to any organization. And so they're theories are they're it's very eclectic they're kind of like picking and choosing pieces from so many different ones and they're very they're very like proud of how they can kind of try to put it together into this you know whole explanatory framework um and they they then they're very um isolated when they do that so they might be talking to other people on the internet but they're not really talking to the people around them Mm, no i think um yeah that that comes through the the i guess the in, individual um, nature of some of the the explanations, which I think we all we all have to a greater or lesser extent, but ha- that's hardly surprising if there's a if there's a, a couple of steps removed from organised political forces that catalyse and organise thinking in, in in those sorts of ways. I guess, but the the point that we were maybe going to move on to before we got down this this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, if if you will, um, was was around around gender because this comes through. Um, I think in a really interesting way in in the book and particularly maybe notions of masculinity and and legacy i mean what do you think the role of 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 gender is in in the the discussions that you had it's sort of you know that's interesting because i think men and women were um experiencing class um in a really different way and then mm. the process that they were dealing with uh changing class um was was not really symmetrical so for women so for men um, who went away were kind of at the cent- center of this industrial working class. Um, for them, it was they there was this immense sense of loss. So a sense of loss about being a protector and being someone who would support their family and a provider um, and kind of sense of pride. And many of the men would talk about the generations before them. So they talk about their fathers and grandfathers who worked in very dangerous conditions, but they were willing to sacrifice their bodies for their mm. families. Um, and they would talk about the kinds of um, connections that, you know, their their families were part of. Um, and in a way, like they didn't know what to do anymore. So because they didn't, you know, they might still have a sense that there should be some kind of economic justice, but they didn't really have much of a connection to other workers anymore. Um, for some of them, they, they didn't even know what it meant to be working class anymore. And they were kind of giving up on connections to others altogether. Um, and, you know, I think they just didn't really know where their identity should come from. And for some of them, that also meant that um, having power over ethnic minorities and women became much uh, more important because I think because they had lost so much of that provider role. Mm. Um, I- and so for men, in some ways, like the women are very interesting because for them, it, it's like, in a way, it hasn't only been a story of loss because it's also a story of having more freedoms in terms of gender. Um, but in a lot of ways, like the women are trying to cope with the men. So um, trying to figure out like, if my job is not to be married and raise children um, and you know, I don't have this sort of white picket fence that I imagined I would, then who am I and how do I want to remake um, myself? Yeah, and I think that <clears throat> I guess that absence of of the center of of identity come comes through quite quite clearly. And just I think you you did mention this in in what you were you were saying. But what what do you think comes to sort of fill this this gap, perhaps particularly for for some of the men that you speak to, you spoke to. So I think for some men, especially the ones who still believe that there should be some kind of economic justice. So people who believe there should be higher minimum wage and who really believed in unions and thought that there should be higher taxes. Um, For these men, what often happened was that they'd make clear distinctions between who was deserving and who wasn't. Um, And these were often kind of uh, based on 
race or ethnicity or nationality. So it'd be sort of like, well, you know, my grandfather fought really hard for workers' rights and, you know, for pensions or for wages. And um, it's not really fair that these other people, you know, didn't fight for it and, you know, mm. they get special treatment. Um, and so the the kind of authority over women and racial minorities um, in a way almost went hand in hand with preserving any kind of sense of um, solidarity with other white workers. Mm. Um, and that was kind of one way. And But we could also see other men, especially younger men who didn't really have a sense of belonging to a class. They only saw themselves as individuals. Um, and so, you know, they wanted to be recognized for, you know, making sacrifices and taking risks. So people would be very proud to say, like, you know, I break my body for 12 hours a day and nobody owes me anything. Um, you know, I'm proud of that. It's my choice. Um, and these men wouldn't maybe be as racist because they'd say everyone's an individual, but then they wouldn't have any sense that, you know, a business owed them anything. Mm, no, I think, yeah, that's, a, I think that's a, such a great, um, sort of summary of some of the, the really interesting complex themes that, that come through in the book. But I think Alex had a, a question that follows on from that before yeah, I, I mean, keep talking. Cause I, I mean, I think a lot of the, I, I mean, you were talking there about relative loss versus I guess, absolute loss or, um, the way that, for example, women in some ways have gained over this period um, and have, uh, to, to, to a large extent, become more equal uh, to men than they were in the 1970s, for example, uh, when the working class as a whole uh, was on a, on a more solid footing, uh, kind of socially as a whole. There were more steady jobs and so on. Um, I think a lot of the kind of liberal and certainly like identitarian discourse focuses purely on these relative gains, right? They focus on men versus women or one race ver versus another uh, and don't look at the, the question of class. Um, I think obviously your work seems to mediate both of those things very, very well. And I guess my question is, can you, are you able or would you be willing to sort of generalize in any way about the way that in the self-consciousness of the people that you spoke to, whether they focus more on kind of relative gains and losses visa you know in terms of uh, a gender identity or racial identity or what have you uh, or they really see themselves as as a class losing or you know just really perhaps just as an individual and there's no um, identification um, whether on gender or race grounds at all oh that's interesting um, well I think that for for example for um, white men there was definitely a sense of um, class class decline for sure um and you know when white women were really interesting too because they would they'd observe the kind of decline of white men and they'd actually like be very aware and they'd say look like look at these men you know they've lost the kind of class privilege that they had um mm. they've kind of lost the role of the, the ability to use their masculinity um as a way to be superior and like look at them now they you know, they're becoming racist and they're walking around the town with guns and they're doing that to compensate. And so there was like also a lot of awareness where the white women, um, it's like their fortunes were no longer as tied to the white men because they didn't have to rely on them. And they were kind of able to see clearly what was going on with um, the way white men were almost compensating. And so I thought that was interesting. And then, you know, the white women, um, I would say they still primarily saw themselves in sort of a family role and they were kind of trying to figure out who they were if they didn't play that role. Um, and so in a way, like the sort of industrial working class family breaks up and they're trying to figure out what their role is. Um, and so, but then if we looked at the kind of newcomers in town who were um, black and mostly Puerto Rican, um, there was actually like a lot more hope towards the future. So they weren't they weren't telling a story of decline. They were telling a story of possible, possibly actually um, being able to be more successful in the future, even though so, their lives are actually much worse. Mm, so just to pick up on this, <clears throat> this point, we haven't really explicitly talked about um, race yet, but it runs through the whole book. And you've mentioned this idea of newcomers a, a couple of times. I mean, could you maybe just um, ex explain to us a little bit what... Um, what you think that the role of race maybe in structuring the, the argument of the book 
was or more generally in in the you know in the interviews that you um that you had yeah part of part of what was interesting to me is that there's there's many books about the white working class and especially about white working class men um and we kind of watch how white working class people use race as a kind of almost like a foil so they make themselves feel better by saying um well i work harder than you know black people or um you know, I'm still superior, like I may not have any money and I may have lost my job, but, you know, I'm white and I have that to kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, support myself. And so, um, sorry, guess, j- just to jump in, um, would, would, would they say that directly? I'm better because I'm white. Or would it come across kind of indirectly or um, how would they how would it come across when they say something like that? Um, so in my, in for the people I spoke to. Most of them would not say I'm I'm better because I'm say that. Um, although I will say there were a few people I spoke to who were kind of known around town for their um, very explicit white nationalist views. And so I I actually did end up talking to a few people who were part of kind of small organizations um, that actually. Um, you had to be white to join, and they um, did see something very special about white culture, um, and that was also a shock to me um, because so you, they, they weren't race blind; they were very race aware um, so and were willing to talk about. It. Yeah, just just to maybe expand on this a little bit, you talk to um, <clears throat> somebody who considers themselves a, a white gentleman, but they're perhaps um attitudes his attitudes don't really seem entirely gentlemanly um could you maybe sort of ex- ex- i guess explain this a little bit how this this quite um this kind of moral upstanding uh, view of oneself could possibly um coexist with with what seems to be quite white nationalist potentially views yeah so i had heard about this is brian and mm. um when i was interviewing other people um and i think i was sort of told by a few of them that i should try to talk to him um and i because i think he was also seen as a little bit um as kind of crazy person in the cool region um, but because for how extreme he was and so i did end up talking to brian and he was um you know a working class guy who was you know struggling to support his family um, you know, struggling to keep his family together and had really embraced um, white nationalism. And for him, he was making this point that, you know, he wasn't really, I think he was trying to say that he wasn't really violent and he wasn't openly racist and he didn't use racial slurs, but that he was in a way really into protecting and preserving and celebrating uh, white culture. Um, mm-hmm. So he was he was trying to say that, you know, I think he was in a way trying to say he wasn't a racist, but then, um, but I, he was kind of trying to present himself to me as very reasonable and, you know, um, and his dad had been in like a biker nationalist gang, which I think gang, which was kind of, I think more openly, um, violent, but anyway, so he, he was interesting because he was telling me how important it was to maintain white pride and then he also had organized a march around town that was about getting our taking our town back and he didn't talk about it in racial language he said it was about getting drug dealers out and drug users out and making the you know park safe for the, for the children again but when i talked to other people in town it was clear that it was only white men marching and they had their guns and they would purposely walk by areas that were um inhabited by people of color and the people of color felt very threatened by this and didn't feel like they could join the march. Um, and so that, that was, um, in a way that there was this tension in the town between the newcomers who were not white and then the white people and the white people would blame the newcomers for destroying the town. Um, and then the newcomers would be like, no, the town was already destroyed. That's why we're here because it's cheap that we can afford to live. And so it was, I think it was interesting to me that there was such conflict over the idea of, of place. So they were kind of fighting over, you know, what had happened and where they were and, you know, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. And it, it just brought a lot of tension into the book. Mm. So I guess maybe to, to sort of 
move on from <clears throat> some of the things which you found on the the more of the inter- individual interviews to to some of the themes which um or maybe some of the implications of the analysis i mean one of the the really big questions is 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 around working class political disengagement which obviously is the starting point of of the book um and runs all the way through it i mean do you think it's do you think you could uh, maybe summarize it a little bit what what do you think are the the major um reasons and forms for this uh, disengagement i think we've touched on quite a few of them already but just to 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 pull it all together a little bit because i think this is one of the things which really leaves you after you've finished reading the book is is potentially how how deep some of these um anybody who's interested in socialist organizing you know it, it's quite sobering how deep perhaps some and and how understandable some of this disengagement is it's it is so i would say that um part of the part of the takeaway is that you know when i tried to talk about politics with the working class you know they wanted to t- kind of talk about a very broad array of things that were affecting them and causing them pain and that went from you know family troubles and addiction and unemployment and poverty and racism Mm. Um, incarceration and corruption and violence and illness. And so um, I think it's really interesting that these were these were topics that were political for them um, and that they were actually very critical of um, how they had ended up in having these troubles. So they were very critical of economic inequality. Um, they were very critical of politicians who had failed to do their job and care about them and protect them from poverty and exploitation. Um, but I would say from there, they they would have this realization and from there um, it would kind of be derailed. So instead of turning into any kind of collect- collective action, it would usually result in withdrawal. And a big reason why that happened was that they would be trying to figure out how to make their suffering make sense. And um, they would do it by saying, OK, well, my suffering made me who I am. Um, I shouldn't, you know, trust other people. I should only take care of myself. Um, I sh- it's smarter if I remove myself from American society, you know, detach and not trust anyone than it than it would be to actually like work with anyone else. Just wanted to take the opportunity to, to ask and try to maybe connect this to some of uh, your other work as well in terms of um, we've written about the model, model of, of therapeutic selfhood um, where people are very much focused on on uh, markers of personal growth and things like this. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask whether this whether how would you would connect these two things, I guess, um, is that experience of pain and dealing with that um basically completely unmediated and, and trapped within that and, and therefore uh, not mediated to any broader social experience, uh, the experience of other people's pain that might be similar to theirs. Uh, if I could, re- you know, referring to the question George asked earlier about uh, the possibility for solidarity on that basis. Um, I mean, do you, do you see this as, as part of a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of drawing strength from suffering and defining themselves as people who could, you know, go through a lot of pain and were responsible for changing themselves. Um, I that definitely came through in in both books, and I think that you know it, for for the working class, this is kind of a necessary thing because they don't see any other way of making sense of the immense suffering that they're going through. Um, but also, I do think that in this book, it seemed to me like there was also a lot more critique and a lot more awareness of kind of social and cultural and economic forces that were exploitative and that were unfair and that should be changed. Um, and I thought people were kind of willing to say, you know, it's really unfair that, you know, people, there are billionaires, whereas our kids can't even have, you know, art lessons in school. Um, so there, there was actually like a little bit more um, blame of people on top. Um, and to me, that's also... Is that something that you think is is a generalizable trend? I mean, obviously, your research based on you know different, completely different samples. Um, but do you think there has been a, a change uh, between the period in which you were doing your the research for your first book versus uh, the second book? I, I mean, I don't know, but it 
to me, like the recession is kind of what separates the two because I did the field work for my first book at the very beginning of the recession mm. um, in 2008. And then this is sort of a decade later. And um, I, I actually think that's possible. And, you know, for example, the people I talked to in this book, you know, would listen to Bernie Sanders and they would think there wasn't maybe there wasn't so maybe socialism isn't actually that bad or in a way that I just couldn't imagine happening um, in, in the last book. So it's possible. Yeah. No, oh, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to kind of come on to something that I'm, I'm personally very interested in, in is a question of the relationship between anti-politics, trust, and, uh, and mistrust and, and authority. Um, I mean, so starting, I guess, with mistrust, because I guess that's just something that runs throughout. Uh, I mean, do you find that there is a greater mistrust of a particular type of organization, be it political institutions or of corporations? Or is it just seen as, I mean, to use a kind of old style cliche, like the man, you know, I mean, is it all kind of one and all kind of authority is to be questioned? Um, and as a follow on from that, is there, I mean, trust is a kind of is a fungible sort of thing. So do you find that trust gets placed on maybe other institutions uh, as a as a sort of um, receptacle for trust because there can't be a trust in you know in corporations or in politics or um, other institutions that the people end up trusting maybe the military or trusting the church or trusting I mean who knows what it might be um, did you find that I would say that um, their their distrust I don't think it's just a you know we shouldn't trust authority I think there are examples. Um, for why they are distrustful are usually very specific and often um, took place in their own lives. Um, and they would tell stories of believing in an institution and then being betrayed and sort of learning how the world really works. Um, and so, you know, it might be um, having a you know bad experience in the military. Um, it might be having bad experiences in a church or um, a hospital where they they felt like they kind of believed in the system, maybe a for-profit college, and then it turned out not to work the way it was supposed to work. And I, I think it's actually that they wanted to be able to believe in the institution, like, you know, joining the military out of patriotism, and then just becoming very jaded when they saw what was happening on the ground. Mm. And then it seemed like they would then apply the distrust in one sphere to other so it's, so, it's, so it's like betrayal or abandonment rather than a, just default cynicism. Yes. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, it makes sense. I think their experiences do make sense. Um, yeah. And they're, they're very specific critiques. So, I, I mean, <clears throat> I guess one of the really striking things that and probably one of the wider implications of, of the, the analysis is around so one of your interviewees says the American dream has been has been stolen. I mean, do you think there's do you think there is really a shared n notion of the nation in the American working class today? I mean, do you think it's there is something sufficiently coherent that can be said to be this is the um, the idea of America as uh, or or, or <clears throat> people have come to look for America as Bernie Sanders' 2016 memorable election video uh, suggested, or is it is it too too fractured has that idea of some um, social contract, which is an idea which comes up a, a few times in the book. Has that been left behind? I mean, I think one one unifying theme for most of the people is that either you know the American dream is dead or it's dying, mm -hmm. and that you know if maybe there used to be something called an America, but right now it's it's really broken. Um, and I, I really would um, hear that from everyone, you know, you know, varying race and gender that, you know, it's almost a fantasy to think there's some there, people are able to work their way up without help or, um, you know, this idea that and there's this quote in chapter one where someone says, like, nothing means nothing anymore. So it's almost it's the sense that, you know, everything is about money now and there's you know, we don't owe each other anything and we don't care about anything deeper than profit. And, um, you know, America, someone says, you know, if you have money, you do what you want, you kill someone, you beat the charge. Um, you know, but, you know, other people it's like, you know, politicians are going to keep making things good for rich people. They were going to make it harder for me. It doesn't matter. Um, and that's actually, I think the most is what they share. It's that America is broken and 
Maybe we can put it back together. Um, but it's definitely a fantasy to think that there is this larger America that we're all part of. Yeah, I mean, I guess, if, yeah, it, it, it does come through quite strikingly that, yeah, it would be quite sad, I guess, if the American dream is is were to be dead because it's, um, you know, not an unproblematic idea, but certainly some some good good parts. I guess maybe one of the, the key questions of, of the whole, like to take a step back of the whole book for, for socialists is whether there's really anything to be encouraged by here, or whether this is a kind of depressing episode of, of the, the podcast, because it really it emerges quite clearly from from some of the things that that, that people say that uh, individual survival and politics don't really seem to be very closely um, related. It doesn't seem to be there's an, an easy turn to political solutions um, for, for for all sorts of, of problems and, and causes of of pain. I mean, do, I guess this is probably a question for 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 all of us. I mean, do but obviously Jennifer, you you first. Do you think there's anything to take that's positive in terms of the possibilities for for organising and for for politicising and and mobilising and all this kind of um, quite you know this hard work of, of of building political consciousness and and coalitions. I think there is some hope. I mean. It, it wasn't just this working class saying that, like, we believe in America. And of course, if you work hard, you can make it. And, um, you know, instead, it was people who were extremely critical, who were pointing out all of the ways that institutions have been, you know, corrupted by by money and by showing all the ways that politicians have been bought off by corporations. Um, and like, you know, showing all kinds of ways that, you know, profit has become more important than um, than people's lives. And I so. And I think, you know, because they're able to do that, they're also some of them very critical about of, you know, racism and of sexism. Um, and I think within that, it kind of forces them to also try to imagine, you know, what would be more fair or what would justice look like or what would opportunity actually look like, uh, you know, instead of this idea that there's an American dream. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of contradictions and a lot of tensions, um, but also within that, um I think some hope, but the the main thing for me is that if people are going to work together, there has to be trust. And I think the trust would have to be rebuilt at a very like one-on-one level, right? I don't think you can rebuild trust through like a TV ad or something. I think they're too smart for that. They're not going to fall for that. It has to be um, a relationship that's built over time. So it seems like it would be a lot of work. I actually had a question which led on directly from that because I wanted to kind of maybe flip the question around because obviously the object of, of your research is kind of the work is the working class. And I wanted to look at it maybe from the other angle, which is, you know, the, the what you a lot of what you describe is exactly this, not the relationship to institutional politics, but very much a distance from it. And um a quite deep mistrust such that, as you exactly said it, it has to be rebuilt, um, you know, from the ground up. It can't just be trying to reconnect institutional politics or the presidency to uh, the individual experiences of working class people in, in the towns that you uh, that you do your research in. Um, but it, it strikes me that kind of, if you talk to kind of middle class professionals, um you could argue that maybe they believe too much in politics in so in the sense that um, their identification with politics is often very much tied to a certain identity as a liberal or a conservative. Um, and that maybe they, they kind of over identify with politics in a way which in some ways is a mirror image of, uh, of the working class people that you spoke to. Um, and, and maybe the expectation from the part of, uh, you know, organizers or people d- kind of deeply involved in institutional politics is, you know, why don't, you know, you should trust us. We're promising this. Why don't you believe us? And I think th- that's where the big disconnect is. That on one side, you have people who believe perhaps too much in uh, the possibilities of establishment institutional politics. And on the other side, people who believe maybe too little in it. I think that's true. I mean, I was laughed at for voting by many of my respondents. I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like, why do you like think you're so important that you're actually changing things? Like, are you kidding? Like, look at how rigged the system is. And in a way, like, there's something for me to learn from them too. Like, thinking how important my vote is when, um, and maybe instead of actually me like thinking about all the ways that, um, you know, I don't have power and maybe I should be more critical of. 
so yeah, I, I think that I think that's important. I, I think that I like your point about um, the identity as an activist among the middle class. So I, I guess I had a, I had a question which you know to kind of take the analysis in a in a, um, a different context almost that in the UK we have <clears throat> it's almost a moral panic amongst some of the political class around what what are called labour heartlands. So these ideas that here are some some places in in the country um, that 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 need to be voting Labour or ought to be voting Labour um, and are these kind of bastions of, of, of the organised working class in, in, in the past. I guess this this makes me think, what what has been the response to the analysis? I mean, I guess particularly perhaps amongst um, some of the people that Alex maybe mentioned, some of the activists amongst the um, professional managerial class or the, the middle class. I mean, is is <clears throat> do you think that this has had any... Um, impact on the way that, the, for example, the Dem- the Democratic Party would would understand what it what it's what the task facing it in the 2020 election is, for example, because I think the um, misunderstanding of what was um, ahead of it in the 2016 election was quite striking, and obviously led to the led to the consequences that we all um, we all know about. That's interesting. I mean, I'm not really sure, but I think this idea that you know you can win elections by mobilizing non-voters like i think mm. it might kind of challenge that idea or at least show like how mobilizing is not maybe as easy because people have like really deeply rooted um belief systems uh that come out of their own experiences um for why you know they're they shouldn't be mobilized or why they don't believe in the system and you know why they think that voting would just legitimate a system that was rigged against them mm. so i think that's something um that maybe could be part of it and then also i think for the democrats like kind of in a way like don't be so smug and think that you're obviously the party of the working class because they don't trust you and they don't think that you're serving them and they think you're kind of just as bad as the other side um and so that that might kind of force some rethinking about um maybe putting class and inequality said like as much more central to um you know the democratic party message than it had been i think if that were a lesson that were learnt by the left um, across Europe and, and in America, that would be extremely uh, useful. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, thanks uh, so much for, for joining us. I think that's, you know, it's, it's an extremely wide ranging um, discussion, but not as wide ranging, I think, as, as the book, which is, um, I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm on commission for it, but, you know, just, just to say, uh, really, really excellent. So yeah, thank you um, thank very much you. for joining us. Really and uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it was great to talk um, to you. Thanks very much. I enjoyed meeting you. Oh, is that a th- is that a thumbs up uh, emoji? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I, I, I've never done this before, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> okay. Right, let's see if I can uh, reciprocate. Sorry, Alex normally uh, handles the the very um, smooth and professional closing of of interviews and stuff like that so that's why no, i kind but, of mangled it but the a little but bit. The, the thumbs up emoji actually just i mean the, our, our listeners our listeners won't be able to see that but um i certainly appreciated it so i think that's a, that's a good as closing as we can have you know that's brilliant we need an audio ident of a very, thumbs very up emoji <laughs> All right, that's it for this week. Thank you very much again to Jennifer Silva. Thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you like what we're doing, as always, please drop us a review wherever you can. We'll be back in the new year with many more discussions on the themes of trust, authority, and anti-politics. Just a shout out for what's coming up until the end of the year. We have a pre-election episode coming out this coming Tuesday. That's right, we're switching to Tuesday publication dates, so keep an eye out for that. This will be our last Thursday episode. Uh, This came out on Thursday, the 28th of November. The next one out will be Tuesday, the 3rd of December, where we'll be doing a preview of what is likely to be a generational election in the UK, whichever way the results go, its impacts are likely to be long felt. So tune in for that on Tuesday. Uh, We'll have a post-election special as well, which will be a free episode and coming up on Tuesday, the 10th of December, will be our 100th episode. We'll be doing a special episode, drawing in a whole range of voices to reflect on 1989, 30 years on. So please do tune in for that. Thank you for listening. As always, catch you later. Bye-bye.